You're listening to Speaking of Stories, a podcast where authors meet to talk about themselves, their books, and their view of different parts of life and society. In this episode, we'll hear from Roxane Gay, an American feminist writer and professor. Uh, you know, if that's good feminism, I, I admit up front, I'm a bad feminist. I, I, there are certain things I'm just not going to be very good at. I'm going to be inconsistent sometimes, but my heart is going to be in the right place. And Karin Kakan Hermansson, a Swedish feminist and artist who will have her very first book released in September. I think we have this in the feminist scene, like we're not supposed to objectify other women, even mm-hmm. not our girlfriends. That's a shame. I'll, I'll objectify the shit out of you. <laughs> <laughs> this is Speaking of Stories, and I'm Kakan Hermansson. And I'm Roxanne Gay. Chapter one. What does it really mean to be a bad feminist? So, Roxanne Gay. Yes, Cookie. Yeah. Cook welcome on. to the podcast, Thank Speaking you. of Stories, mm-hmm. episode six. Ooh. Yeah, I know. Six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It has something. Which I know is sex. Yeah. Mm. Roxanne, yeah. you love Sweden, don't you? I do. I do. I'm going to be speaking Swedish very soon. I yeah. know that Thank You is tak. Or tak tak. <laughs> yeah, tak tak. I'm good. Double tak. <laughs> so, when did you get here? I got here on... <laughs> <laughs> That's the trick question. Yeah, I got here at seven thirty in the morning on Tuesday. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. jet lag. Jet lag has not been so bad. Really? Yeah, I for I travel so much that I've just fight through it because otherwise I'm not functional. And so often I land in a place and I have to immediately go and do media. And be smart. Or yes, an yeah. event, and so I don't have I can't afford to, you know, sort of be like. Ugh. But when I'm done, like when I shut down, I shut down yeah. all the way. I've never been to Sweden, so it's been just cool to be in a new place and um, to meet a lot of really nice people. And everyone is just devastatingly attractive. And so, you think? Oh, it's disgusting. I walked down the street. Like yesterday, I saw a man who was so attractive, I moaned. I was just like, oh. Yeah. It's disgusting. Like everyone is just like a supermodel. It's just like, what is wrong with you people? And I'm, nobody I'm seems so to sorry. notice. Nobody oh, seems to notice. Oh, okay. I walk around looking like this plus sized supermodel and I know. Yeah, you brains look like a supermodel. Well, enough about me. No. Let's so, Roxanne, before you, you had this life of success and being a really wealthy author. And <laughs> oh, so wealthy. Yes. Yeah, so at least $10 in the cat. In the <laughs> you grew up with Haitian American parents or just Haitian? Haitian parents. Yeah. I'm a first generation American. Yeah. Tell me about your childhood. Uh, my childhood was good. You know, my parents are super Haitian <laughs> and super loving and Haitian parents are just very intense. They never stop parenting. Like my mom every day is like where are you in Sweden? What's going on? <laughs> She's tracking you down. Uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm 41. That's where I am. <laughs> She's like, uh-uh, you're 11. Correct, uh, forever. Um, but it was wonderful. I have two younger brothers, and so that's also a lot of fun because I get to be, well, I thought I would you know, get to be the boss, but my middle brother is kind of like the alpha child. I would think that you were the alpha. Uh, no, frighteningly enough, my brother is the alpha. Oh my god! I know. Imagine but I, those dinners. Oh, so much fun! <laughs> it's all about him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we all get along, and we did. Get, we've always gotten along. I mean, we argued as kids, and we argue now. In fact, my the, that one, that brother and I, right now, we've been in a, an argument since October. <laughs> yeah. Are good you times. solving it? No. No, why? why? Because I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> and he's not. He's a Republican, so <gasps> I know. What does uh, your brothers work with? Uh, my middle brother is a CEO. Yeah. <laughs> and it's ridiculous. And my <laughs> youngest brother is an engineer. 
Oh my God, you're all so successful. Yeah, we're actually about to be featured in Time Magazine for oh, um, being my. successful siblings in different fields. Yeah, it's weird. That is so cool. Yeah, my and parents, your parents worked really are hard. Are they retired? Uh, fake retired. My dad's um, an engineer as well. He owns his own company and um, in Port-au-Prince. He owns a construction oh. and concrete company. So they live there now? or in- They split their time. They oh, go yeah. back and forth. Did you see your future this bright or did you know that you were going to be uh, a writer? Well, I always wanted to be a writer. The reality of writing is that it's very difficult to make a living as a writer. And so I always knew I was going to have to do something else. So I've always had a day job, but I've also always written and I've written because I loved it. And now I'm just very lucky that I can make a living from mm. writing. I think I'm. A, I think I'm going to quit my job soon. So yeah, because you have this. I mean, <laughs> I I would say it's more than a day job. You have a, a job at the university. Yeah, I teach at Purdue University, and that's a full time job. And then my writing. I have several books to write, and that's a full time job. And also my freelance writing. And uh, I do a lot of speaking engagements. And so it's like I have four full-time jobs right now. And it's a lot to balance. How is that working out for you? Not so well. I mean, it's working out well, but I have no free time and no time to just... Chill down. Yeah, relax. Do you have four different personalities? No, I don't. One? Just one. I just realized at some point, I think probably around 30, that it was just easiest to be myself than to try and be like whoever... The person I was around wanted me to be, which I had done for many years. Uh, But no, now I'm just me. I am who I am at my core, and I'm 41. And so I'm not going to change at this point. And Roxanne, you are so amazing. Thank you. I am. You are. No, I'm just kidding. Such an inspiration. I don't think that. But that's very kind. Thank you. So I read your book, Bad Mm -hmm. Feminist. That was really good for me to read. And I think for all of the feminists the real feminists around the world. I think it's it's good to to read that kind of book to be like just take a deep breath, exhale and be like I don't have to be perfect. Yes. So what is a bad feminist to you? You know, it's two different things. It started as a joke. Like, haha, I'm a bad feminist. I never expected it to become this thing where now people are like, it's the bad feminist. And I always just look like, where? Who where is she? But I, I think that feminism It's so necessary, and for so long, feminists have had to fight for so much, for just basic human dignity, that uh, we've developed very rigid definitions of who a feminist is, how she should behave, what she looks like. And those standards are impossible for most women to meet. Mm. And so, uh, you know, if that's good feminism, I I admit up front, I'm a bad feminist. There are certain things I'm just not going to be very good at. I'm going to be inconsistent sometimes, but my heart is going to be in the right place. And I'm always open to learning and growing and changing um, as much as one can change and mature. Uh, And also, I think that historically, feminism has focused on middle-class, heterosexual white women. And if that's good feminism, well, no, I'm going to choose to be a bad feminist and think about women of color, transgender women, working-class women, Uh, disabled women. There are just a lot of women who have been abandoned by the mainstream feminist project, and uh, we need to reclaim that. And if that is feminism, it's not really interesting, and it's not very democratic. No, it isn't. It's so narrow. I mean, there are, of course, a number of women who fit that very specific demographic, but there are more of us who do not. And how is it that our voices are rarely brought to the forefront of feminist conversations, 
even now. I mean, that's not acceptable. But do you feel with you being the bad feminist and writing this book that you might be uh, in a place where you, again, you're being pictured as another kind of a good feminist? Mm -hmm. Do you get me? Absolutely. And like the perfect feminist? Yeah. That I worry about that quite a lot. And, you know, one of the things I write very early on in the book is don't put me on a pedestal. I'm human. I'm going to make mistakes. And I'm going to do so often. I'm going to try and learn from those mistakes. But, you know, I'm not your hero. And people tend to put you on a pedestal anyway. And mm -hmm. then, of course, want to knock you down when you disappoint them. Yeah. Uh, because I think that when we look up to people, we begin to idealize them. And so it's not that I don't want people to look up to me. It's very flattering that they do. And I, I take that very seriously. And I respect it. And I try to live up to what that means. But don't idealize me and don't think that, you know, don't think that I'm not human and that I'm not me and that I'm going to sort of do what you want. Like the other day on, I tweeted as a, I retweeted something. It was, you could call it porn, but it was a clip of a woman with very large breasts sort of wrapping them around. Was it me? No, sadly. Uh, but we can recreate <laughs> it later. <laughs> And she was just like wrapping her breasts around another woman's head. It was funny yeah. because the person who tweeted it said, this is how I'd like to die. Yeah. And I just thought it was funny. And so I retweeted it. I have no regrets about that. I would retweet yeah, it. Yeah, but people, I, yes. I can imagine the And so a woman tweeted me and I, I just didn't respond because I don't have the energy. But she was like, please don't retweet porn. I, I expected more of you. And I was like, when on earth did you think that I don't enjoy pornography? <laughs> I mean, like there's nothing and about me that when, would suggest that I'm against why porn. Why would you be like responsible for the whole porn industry. Correct. I mean, I think that we can critique the porn industry, but I mean, first of all, I, I have, I, I'm just an, a bystander. I, I'm more interested in hearing what people who work in that industry have yeah. to say about what needs to be done to make it more ethical and to make sure that people are compensated appropriately and that they work under safe conditions. That's all mm. I care about. Yeah. I think do what you want with your body. Um, And so I was just stunned by that. I just thought, what feminism doesn't include allowing for pornography and for um, women to enjoy pornography when it's done and well? And enjoy themselves. Yes. And enjoy their sexuality. Yeah. I mean, we always remove agency. Like, oh, no, the women who do that are, are victims and um, they're being exploited. And I think that everyone is exploited when you participate in a capitalistic labor system. Yeah. Um, it's just how you're exploited. And it's not my position to tell other women what to do for a living. I'm not putting food on their table. The kind of honesty that you have in, in the book and also being very vulnerable, telling the truth about your childhood, mm -hmm. generally being vulnerable in interviews, etc. Do you think that's a necessity to be that kind of critical that you are in the book? Is that a, like a qualification in a feminist environment? No, no, not at all. I think it's just, you know, I don't think of it as being vulnerable. I just think of it as being honest. And I think sometimes the truth exposes mm. um, the more vulnerable parts of you. Uh, it's not something that I do sort of with pleasure, but I also think that I don't have the energy to to construct a facade anymore or a persona. I did that for so many years. And I'm now I'm just more interested in being myself. And um so yeah, this is the truth of me. So what happens when you're when you don't put up a facade and really dig into yourself and is that like getting to know a new person? Um it's like getting to know myself. Just getting to the truest part of myself and quite honestly it has been extraordinarily freeing. To like just 
put away all the pretenses and all the role playing of being good Roxanne. Um, It's just freeing and uh, it frees up a lot of my brain space for doing the kinds of things I want to do, which are, you know, write and have thoughts. Yeah, but how do you do that? I mean, that must be, for me, that's a really big inspiration, I guess, for a lot of women and and other people in the world. Uh, how How do you get there? I don't know. I think for me it was just time. Time and realizing that I did have something worth saying and that it was okay to not be perfect. Like just that freedom. I just gave myself that freedom and I don't know how. It just happened where I just realized it's okay to just be you Mm. and that's enough. And for the people who, who don't think it's enough, I can't reach them anyway. And so I don't need to try. And so I've also just stopped trying to impress people. And also confidence. I mean, I went to school. I earned my PhD at this point, you know. I've done everything career-wise that I could really possibly want to do Mm. and new doors are opening and that's also exciting and so I just I have nothing left to prove that's cool Mm, it is do you think you will enter another era where you will be like oh my god I don't know what I'm doing Well, I mean, I wake up every day with that <laughs> feeling. It's like I Why have this I confidence stopped? to be myself, but um, I always, you know, I, I think that as confident as I can be, I'm also deeply insecure, like most women are. Yeah. Um, just like, who am I to write about feminism? Who am I to have these lofty opinions about anything? How dare I? Mm. Um, that certainly is something that I think about quite a lot. But I just, on most days, I try to allow my confidence to override my insecurities. And um, on the days when that doesn't happen, I fake it until I make it. Sorry. See? Yeah, but the sound was not good. No, I I understand. I just like the way you slammed it with authority. Chapter two. A woman's word should be enough. Let's talk about uh, men hating women. Yes. Uh, that's a three-hour conversation. Absolutely. It's, a, <laughs> it's actually a global epidemic. Yeah, it is. But people uh, tend not to understand that. But, I, I mean, reading the chapter about how we let every woman down who, who's been battered by any famous or just any man. Mm-hmm. That's a really big problem in Sweden, too, as you mm. can understand. How do you decide on what level you want to talk and write about men hating women because do you feel like you need to adapt to people being like narrow-minded or stupid or (laughs) i mean did you lose patience like years ago and what is your strategy when it comes to that because that's a very it's a sensitive subject it is i think it just depends it really depends on a given situation but i think that You do have to find a way to reach people beyond your traditional audience, beyond the people who are going to sort of inherently agree with what you have to say. Um, Otherwise, you're just talking in a sound chamber. Mm. You're talking in a vacuum. And uh, that's not something that I'm interested in doing. I also am not going to hold people's hands when they are willfully ignorant to really, you know, for people who think, oh, men don't hate women. I mean, do I think every man hates women? No. But when you look at so many of the issues that women face throughout the world, the hatred of women is at the core of it. Um, That we have women in so many countries that 
deal with domestic violence constantly, that sexual violence remains pervasive, Mm. um, whether it's street harassment or sexual assault or rape. That's not a love of women that is driving these things. And so let's let's just call it what it is. Let's be honest about what's going on and what women are facing. Uh, And I refuse to back down from that. And I think sometimes you have to be just relentless and open about this issue. And does it make certain people uncomfortable? Yes. But what's more uncomfortable, hearing the truth or suffering from the hatred of men in very real ways, very physical and sometimes financial ways? I feel like in Sweden, we, we tend to talk about men hating women on a different level now than just five or ten years ago. How so? Women are more feminist now. Mm-hmm. Because we talk and I think we we kind of see clearly now mm-hmm. what is happening. Not all of us, of mm-hmm. course not. But I think that both men and women, but especially women, have that kind of strategy. We need to survive. We yes. need to like see things clearly. It's not a um, taboo anymore to talk about things that men do to you. Mm-hmm. But what's the climate in, in the U.S. amongst feminists, in the feminist scene? You know, Which I understand is big yeah, and diverse, I mean, it's, of it's course. Very, it's a very large community. It's very diverse. You know, I think feminists and women in the United States, are, are we are talking more about the issues that women face at the hands of men. But I think the stigma remains that it's still difficult, that women still are not believed, and that law enforcement friends and family, um, as a society, we still tend to look away. Mm. Uh, look at, you know, for example, a couple years ago, the football player Ray Rice was videotaped abusing his wife, um, who was at the time his fiance. She ended up marrying him anyway. Mm. And they claim it was a one-time thing, and perhaps it was. But where there's smoke, there's fire. Mm. And, you know, people are still willing to watch that man rehabilitate. And he has a right to rehabilitate, but does he have a right to sort of rehabilitate and regain his career? I don't know. Um, But there's still, you know, when those allegations came out, there were people who said, including prominent sportscasters, what did she do? Yeah. What did she say that made him knock her out and then drag her out of an elevator? That we still are willing to put the culpability on women's shoulders for the stupidity and ignorance of men is. Uh, I think also that's how, how like the world treated Rihanna and the Chris Brown mm-hmm. thing. That that what, was another situation where people said, "What did she do?" Yeah, I don't care what she did. Yeah. There's literally nothing she could have said that would justify him beating her face. I think well, you've got. I think it takes two to argue, but use your words. <laughs> you know, use your words. Yeah, and also like the way he. He proceeded his career and won the Grammys and yes. was on the stage. Mm-hmm. And also when they, you know, coming from being working at like women's shelters, I know the the, the process, how it works. Mm-hmm. You take them back all the time. Of course. And also when they kind of became friends again and they were seen together, mm-hmm. people were like, it's fine. If she forgave him, we then, can all forgive him. Yes. That's fine. She can forgive him all she wants. That's her choice, yeah. and I support that. But I don't have to forgive him. Um, and actually, it's, it's who cares if I forgive him or not. For me, the choice is I'm not going to buy his music or go to his movies or support, you know, his fame in any way. 
it doesn't matter because the industry is perfectly willing to support him. Yeah. He continues Obviously. to make music. He continues to be feted at these award ceremonies. Yeah. Um, and does he deserve to move on? Absolutely. Um, he committed a crime. He actually did pay a price for it. Um, not as much as I think he should mm. have. I don't know that he needs to be excoriated forever. I mean, I look at stars like Charlie Sheen, mm. Sean Penn, mm. uh, Woody Allen. Oh, my God. Woody <laughs> Allen. And all these stars continue oh. to get excellent press. And they continue to live consequence-free, even though they have been very violent toward women. And um, so, you know, we cannot... We still have a very high cultural tollerance yeah. in the United States and, quite frankly, almost everywhere in yeah, the world of course, for I violence a, against women. I have a chapter in my book coming mm-hmm. out this September. I think it's called Reality or Whose Reality Are We Talking About? Mm-hmm. That I'm saying that it doesn't matter what women or like trans people are saying. Anything can happen, mm-hmm. but our reality is never reality. Mm-hmm. And we're never trusted never. Um, to be the own arbiters or communicators of our realities. We're always questioned and interrogated and doubted. Yeah. Um, and it's infuriating uh, because my word should be enough. Yeah. A woman's word should be enough. Chapter 3. Hunger. When I got your book, I was actually sitting on, <laughs> sitting on my toilet reading it. Of course. As I do. And I just like randomly opened up a chapter, started reading, and I was really moved because we have that kind of problem in Sweden but in the states it's even bigger it was the chapter when I read that correct me if I'm wrong young black men in Oakland was it Oakland that tend mm-hmm. to to say I love you more mm-hmm. more often when they leave their homes now yes. because they're more they're more likely to be killed yeah yes oh it's devastating um that was an essay I wrote about Oscar Grant yeah who was murdered on New Year's Eve um, by a transit cop in Oakland, California. Yeah, and Bart. Yes, and when I read that, um, that black men say that I love you more because they never know when it's going to be the last I love you, but they know that it could be. Um, I just thought life becomes a prison in such circumstances. It's just terrifying, but you can't live your life in a state of terror. Which is frustrating because you recognize that you're an endangered species, but you're somehow supposed to walk through life like everything is normal and everything is just fine. And it's not. Um, And, you know, that's for those of us who are lucky. There are certainly people um, who are more marginalized, who have even less freedom and who face, you know, like... Until recent, until the new mayor took office in New York City, young black men, young Latino men were stopped and frisked constantly. Mm. And stop and frisk programs are still alive and well in Philadelphia, Chicago, Washington, D.C. That's no way to live where you are seen as a criminal simply because of the brownness of your skin. But are things happening? Are things moving forward? No. No, of course not. We say they are. No, things are not happening. We are having conversations And the Black Lives Matter movement has done a lot to bring Mm. attention. And so I think that we're having better conversations about it now. But look at the rise of Donald Trump. I think we're going backwards. Mm. And that's um, 
a lot to wrap your mind around. Black people are fine. We don't need to evolve anymore. We don't need to learn anything. We don't need to behave differently. It's white people that need to fix themselves. Mm. And until they do, nothing's going to change. Like, we're good. Yeah. We are just fine. It makes uh, a lot of us white uh, feminists very uncomfortable. Uh, white feminists, that's yeah. a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we are. I mean, we are. We think that we are the biggest underdogs ever. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Until... And we see that in the American feminism quite a lot. Yeah. That white feminists are sort of... And again, this is why bad feminism. Um, historically, white feminists have said, let's address women's issues first. And then we'll get to queer issues oh, yeah, and yeah, issues yeah. for women of color and issues for working class women. As if I can set aside my blackness from my gender or my queerness yeah. from my gender. That does, that's not how it works. I don't like keep my little identities in compartments. I am everything I am all at once. And that's why we talk about intersectional feminism. And it's an ugly word. Not an ugly word. It's an unwieldy word. And people but still, we but love it. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Oh, of course. Are you intersectional today? Yes. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> you know, that's why we talk about the importance of intersectionality, that we can't abandon our various identities. We have to think about how white women move through the world differently from women of color or queer women. And what does that mean? What kinds of things do we need to be doing to make sure that their needs are addressed in addition to sort of women's needs globally? And, you know, these are difficult questions. um, But I think that the more we focus on this sort of intersection of identities within people, the better our feminism is going to be and the more progress that we're going to make. But I feel like uh, white feminists who are unwilling to address these questions, Mm -hmm. I mean, in Sweden... They don't really people don't people don't listen to them anymore. Yeah, um I don't know how I I think people do listen to those feminists in the United States, but the internet has been a great thing. Um it has democratized feminist conversation. And so I think that white feminists Again, and I use that term very broadly. It's not a Go term ahead. that denotes all white feminists. Go ahead. <laughs> not all feminists. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that uh, there's just enough room now and there are enough opportunities for other people to participate in the feminist conversations that they're no longer the only voices mm. in the feminist room. And that's really good to see. I'm really, really looking forward to your new book. Ah, which one? Hunger? Yeah. Uh-huh. This is something that we never talk about in Sweden. Like. I can tell because everyone's always fucking exercising. It's just disgusting. Yesterday I was so angry because at every intersection, it was like the Tour de France. All these people, and they're just on their bikes with their perfect calf muscles and their perfect thighs. Yeah, but like in Stockholm, people are more skinny than the rest of the country. Yeah, I recognize that, yeah. but it's still gross. But then you met me. I did, and you're perfect. Size queen. I am perfect. You are too, honey. Thank you. You have to talk about hunger. Yes. And what it's about. Uh, hunger is a memoir, and it's a memoir of my body, and so it's looking at trauma and obesity. And what is it like to live in the world with a larger-than-life body, with an obese body? And not like Lane Bryant fat, but like fat fat. And it's, uh, you know, it's been a difficult book to write, but I think it's an important book to write because people don't think about it. They, you know, they look at you and they have an opinion, 
but they don't know what it's like to, you know, live in your body. And so I wrote a book about what it's like to live in my body. And so it's actually a very depressing and sort of, oh, well, I guess, I guess life is shit. Yeah. Um, it's a basically a life is shit book, which yeah. is awesome. And I'm, I'm so looking forward to reading it. <laughs> Can't wait to share it with <laughs> the world. No, because I, in my book, again, mm. I have a whole chapter about fat shaming, mm-hmm. reading different studies from Harvard, Yale. Mm-hmm. And I think we never, except from a few feminists in Sweden, we never address these questions. We never talk about the body and uh, obesity mm-hmm. We have to find ways to respect people with different types of bodies. Like, because I'm fat doesn't mean I don't have anything worth saying. It doesn't mean that I don't deserve to walk down the street with dignity instead of being stared at or made fun of. And so, like, how do we have that conversation? Um, How do we just get people to stop caring about other people's bodies? Like, my body has literally nothing to do with you. So maybe you should stop obsessing about it. Uh, And so these are very difficult conversations to have. Um, But I feel like in America, you tend to talk about this on a whole other level than we do here. Like, we we haven't even started. Oh, that's a shame. Because it's so embarrassing. Like, because I also, I think we have this in the feminist scene, like, where I come from, like the punk feminist mm-hmm. scene, we're not supposed to objectify other women, even mm-hmm. not our, our girlfriends. That's a shame. I'll, I'll objectify the shit out of you. <laughs> <laughs> it started that a long time ago. All right. But the thing is, I think, it, but now I like I feel like younger feminists do that all the time. We have this, we love each other's bodies and uh, support them and talk, oh my God, you look so good, you're amazing, you were so sexy, you're so mm-hmm. fine, your ass is amazing, it's so big and round. There's a fine line with... Like, understanding that mm-hmm. me as a big girl, mm-hmm. I have problems. It's cute that you think you're a big girl. You should I, come to the U.S. And, I know. I mean, you would just be like... I know, I know. <laughs> but that is the thing, you know. Because mm-hmm. when I when I come to San Francisco, I'm just a girl. Yes, but absolutely. here, I'm, I'm a big girl. That's amazing. And, but the studies I, I read from the different, you know, amazing universities, mm-hmm. it was so devastating. People would rather, like, lose a year from their life or get a divorce than add like 20 pounds. Absolutely. But you know what? I get it. I would rather do just about anything in life than be fat. I would rather be a cat and I hate cats. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Because it's just people are so mean all the time and everything is hard. Like finding clothes, um, travel, everything is hard and it shouldn't be that way. I mean, the world should just be more accommodating. Uh, But... How do we get there? I have no idea. And it's not our responsibility. No, and that's the thing. It's yours. It's always the marginalized person, whether we're talking about race, gender, sexuality, bodies, um, that has to sort of lead the way. And that puts so much weird. We're doing all the work. And, you know, as much as we've made progress in the United States, I mean, there's still a very tyrannical approach to bodies and thinness, even though... Obesity is a. I don't. I hate to use the word problem, but there. I, I do think that. I think that you should weigh whatever you want to weigh, as long as you're healthy. I mean, I, I, even if you're not healthy, if you're fine with yourself, then yeah. just do you. But I think you know. How do we also talk about bodies and, and talk about some of the challenges, the health risks and health challenges, um, without making people feel alienated? I mean, it's just it's all complicated, and it's. Even more complicated by the reality that this is my body. It's the only body I have. And so 
It's not a theoretical conversation. It's a it's a conversation about my existence. Mm. When it comes to men hating mm. me on internet, mm-hmm. 99% is all about my body. Yes, yeah, same. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like every, not a day goes by when a man on the internet does not send me an email or a tweet or something saying you're fat in mm. one way or another. As if I yeah. don't know. Yeah. As, like as I could be talking about thing. anything. Oh, it's a gorgeous day outside. Oh yeah, because you're filling it with your fat. Yeah, it just like it's yeah. so stupid. Like, I I'm, I actually tweeted a couple of days ago. Oh, I just saw the Biggest Loser, uh, in Sweden on TV. I can't believe that you know that show has made it across the pond, and someone tweeted me. So what? You're the American export on the show. Like it just does not matter. Yeah. It, um, if I complain about a plane seat being small. Yeah. Like. Uh, one man also that same day said, your freakish body doesn't deserve to be out in the world. It's just constant. And I try to, like, you know, say it doesn't bother me. Yeah. But when it's that constant, of course it bothers yeah, me. Yeah, it bothers me too. It's hard because people are just insulting you for who you are and what you look like. and. Yeah. For me and you, I guess, like, people are loving you mm-hmm. and sending you a lot of love. Mm-hmm. But it never really pays... Oh, I can get 200 compliments in a day. And one sort of Cheeto-dusty, disgusting man living in his mother's basement can say, you're fat, and I'll just be like, I'll just take to my bed. Yeah, but the thing is, I don't think he is living in his mother's basement. I think he's like a CEO somewhere. I I think that 50 to 60% of the haters are Cheeto-dusty. Absolutely. (laughs) No, they are. I mean, they can be a CEO, but they're a CEO with Cheeto dust on their fingertips. Of course. Um, You know, the thing is, are these all just sort of gross little trolley men in basements? Not all of them. Some of them are people who have nothing better to do or who are very passive in their lives and have the troll on the Internet to get out their aggression, um, which means that they probably have... And can't satisfy anyone. Yeah, probably. (laughs) What could you do? When you narrow it down, because I think about that a lot, for me it's like, why do they have to tell me that I'm fat? Mm -hmm. Probably because if I'm fat, they're not attracted to me. Yes. And if they're not attracted to me, they don't want to fuck me. Mm -hmm. And uh, What are you if you're not fuckable? Yeah, I need to be fuckable. And I'm like, well, you don't know what you're missing. Because this is golden right here. (laughs) Tell me about uh, the book, An Untamed State. Well, Cochran, uh, my novel, Out Now. God, you're writing so, I mean... I mean, nonstop. Yeah. It's available in bookstores near you, it Swedes. Is. Do you know that my friends actually did the cover for your books? Yes, and did you know that they're women and that they won an award? And, yeah, and that lesbians. they used a type. Oh, fuck. Yeah, of of course. course they are, because lesbians do all the great stuff yeah, in the world. You Did you know it. that they used a typeface that was designed by a woman and that they brought back that had been sort of obscure for many years? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, An Untamed State is a, a novel about a kidnapping in Port au Prince, Haiti, where my parents are from. It's a novel about what this woman, Mireille Duval Jameson, endures during her kidnapping. And how she overcomes it. And she's held for 13 days because her father refuses to pay the ransom. Thanks, uh, Dad. Yeah, great father. Total model. And uh, he worries, you know, that he's going to lose his entire fortune. He's a self-made man. He didn't inherit his wealth. He made it. Um, and he's even more worried that if they if he pays one ransom, they'll start to kidnap other members of the family. Mm-hmm. 
And so he thinks he's making a righteous and moral stand uh, that his daughter is held for 13 days and he chooses to ignore what could be happening to a young woman at the hands of seven men. And so the novel just is, it's a, it's a brutal novel, but I think also a novel about hope yeah. and about survival. And it's a novel about the realities of trauma and that it's not something that you can neatly overcome quickly. Uh, it takes time. It takes a lot of strength. And so that's my novel. I write a, just about happy yeah. stuff. <laughs> I'm a very, very happy writer. Yeah. But where do you get your... your you, you need certain amounts of happiness, too. Absolutely. Where do you get, where do you get that from? Where do I get my happiness? HGTV, which is a home and garden television. Oh, uh, yeah. I will watch any stupid show about remodeling, mm-hmm. about home buying, about tiny homes, which I hate. Um, but you bought some here in Stockholm. Oh, I saw some. They were so cute. I would never live in one, but they were cute. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm in a great relationship, and so that's a, a safe harbor. Mm. And um, I have very good friends and family. So I, I feel like I have a very good support system. And that makes a lot possible. Mm. Um, I read. I go to movies. I, I actually enjoy life. So, you know, I do write about difficult things, but um, I don't see the world as terrible. I think I write about difficult things because I still have some hope for this world. Mm. And I just want to contribute to change in some small way. Very small way, because I'm you just do. a writer. Roxane Gay, you are amazing. Thank you. I oh. think you're amazing. Thank you. I'm so happy that I can meet you. I'm happy to meet you, and you have great tattoos. You've been listening to Speaking of Stories with me, Kokan Hermansson. And I am Roxane Gay. That was all from this episode of Speaking of Stories. You can hear all of our episodes on iTunes or via Acast. Acast. 